0: Please turn with me to Hebrews chapter eight. Hebrews chapter eight. If you have a, a smartphone, we're using the the ESV. I have been uh, simultaneously excited and dreading uh, getting to uh, this chapter in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 8 is the uh, shortest chapter in the book of Hebrews. It is just uh, 13 uh, verses. But absolutely everything in this book has been driving uh, to this point. And I just, for the for the sake of those of you uh, that, that that haven't been with us, I want to read the first three verses of Hebrews chapter one uh, because that is the thesis. A statement, so to speak, the subject of uh, this book. It says, uh, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, it says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That is the the subject, the thesis statement of uh, the book of Hebrews, and so here in in Hebrews chapter eight, it's, it's an application of uh, those points that Jesus Christ is better than than everyone else; that He is a perfect uh, Savior, and so Hebrews eight, which comes um, on the tail end of a, a number of. Um, chapter speaking about Jesus Christ being a great high priest who brings us to God. We'll see some of those points mentioned here. Um, Hebrews 8 is speaking about the New Covenant. And I had no clue when I became a Christian and for the first few years of my life how important this information is. The New Covenant is not a bit of information or trivia that you just kind of file away um, in your mind. The new covenant is to be something that is front and center in the Christian life and in the life of the church. It affects, and I, I mean this, it affects absolutely everything the Christian does and everything the church does. I will say, in my my own life, coming to understand and apply the fact that my relationship with God is based on a covenant rather than a contract, uh, made an enormous positive difference. She's she's not in the room right now, but I mean, I, I could even say that teaching that fact to Lauren probably helped her. Um, do the crazy thing of moving from America to New Zealand and marrying me, um, because it, it made such a good positive difference in her own life, right, so because of the importance of this text, we're going to cover the whole chapter uh, today, and then perhaps a couple more uh, Sundays after that, right, I will... Do a message in depth at the full, looking at the full promises of the new covenant. But that's not today. Okay, so we're just going to cover the whole thing. In summary, the writer of Hebrews tells us that due to the work of Jesus Christ, he is a better high priest of a better covenant between God and his people. That is what's going on. Alright, so let's read the text and uh, we'll, we'll get into it. Hebrews 8 verse 1. Since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old. As the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with it when he says... Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. This is the word of God. Because we do not use the word covenant a lot, especially in our everyday life, I think it's a good idea that we define it, right? And if if, if you're sitting here going, "This is this is all very foreign to me," don't worry, right? Uh, that's what we're gonna. That's what the Word of God is uh, for, and we will explain it. The word covenant occurs over two hundred and eighty times in the Old Testament. It occurs over thirty times in the New Testament. Furthermore, whenever we see language such as like oath or, or, or promise in the Bible, we're seeing covenantal language. We could also say that when you have your Bible, the the Old Testament is the scriptures of the Old Covenant and the New Testament is the scriptures of the New Covenant. Covenant is not an idea restricted to the Bible either. All right? In... Ancient in ancient times, and and we have things that actually function very similar today uh, between nations. Um, a, a conquering king could tell the people that he has conquered, "I will let you. I uh, will make a covenant with you. I'll make a treaty with you. I will uh, give you certain blessings, and you must serve me and honor our commitment by giving me a tenth part of everything you make." uh or earn in a year we we saw that really in genesis 14 we saw that in uh hebrews chapter 7 with melchizedek recounting the battle of five kings versus four kings um where there's abraham and melchizedek comes comes along one king decided he was done with the covenant arrangement, and he was tired of paying tithes uh, to the other king. So he broke the covenant, he broke the treaty, and he tried to take uh, that position. So a covenant could, could merely be something like where you say to someone else, I am your king, uh, you are now my subjects, I will remain your king, I will look after you as long as you meet certain conditions. Marriage is a covenant relationship as revealed in scripture, and that idea, by the way, comes from Malachi 2.14, which says, she is your wife by covenant. There are lots of definitions of, of covenant out there, and like some people say, a covenant is a, a blood oath, um, but I think perhaps the, the best definition, I went looking for a, a good amount of them every definition actually needs to be able to handle all the covenants found in the Bible. And so, Dr. Chris Corhey, whom many of you have met, um, has said this. He says, A covenant in which God is one party is an oath-sworn, legally binding relationship enforced by God. I'll say that again. A covenant is an oath-sworn Legally binding relationship enforced by God. Does that make sense? God is enforcing a legally binding relationship in which He is one, one of the parties. And the reason it's so broad is like, uh, places like, um, Uh, in Genesis with Noah, the, the Noah covenant, that's where the rainbow is actually, uh, from. That covenant is made between God and all of creation. Uh, It's not, it's not even just made with people. It's just all of creation. Here's my covenant. I will not, uh, flood the earth again. Covenants therefore have certain kinds of, um, Materials that they're built with, they all have certain kinds of qualities. Not all covenants are exactly the same. Richard Vicelos has said this. He says, Divine covenants are concerned with the benefits that God bestows, the type of relationship people may have with God, and the means by which we obtain those blessings. He says this. When divine covenants demand conditions of obedience on man's part, they can be viewed as covenants of obedience or covenants of works. When a divine covenant, however, provides all that it requires, it is the covenant of grace. All right? So if the blessings and benefits of the covenant that God gives come via your obedience, it's a covenant of works. And if God provides all that he requires, it is grace. And all of a sudden our minds go, oh, I'm starting to get this. It's good. In each covenant there are, there are blessings that are either offered or earned. And then there are sanctions or curses for violating uh, the covenant. And this is what makes the new covenant truly great. And we'll get to that shortly. To divide up Hebrews 8 very briefly, uh, in verses 1 to 6 we see Jesus being the high priest of a better covenant. In verses 7 to 9 we have the need for a new covenant. In verses 10 to 12 we have the promises, the four promises of the new covenant. And then in verse 13, right at the end, it's the end of the old covenant. Verses 1 to 6, the writer of Hebrews is just bringing every argument in the book to bear. He started with his his thesis at the beginning of the book about the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And then from the end of chapter 4, really to now, he's been talking about how good Jesus is as a high priest. And he, that's why he says in chapter 8, verse 1, he says, Now the point of what we're saying is this. He's saying, that's preacher talk for, I'm summing this up now for you. The point of everything I've been saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. This is so helpful in understanding what is going on in the Old Testament with that priestly worship and the temples and the tabernacle and all of that. We have in verse 2 the language of a priest who's also a king who is seated at the right hand of God. And a priest who is sitting down is a priest who is Finished his sacrificial work. And he's a king because he's ruling. Kings sit on thrones. We all get that idea. And so this is all bringing to mind repeatedly. That Jesus Christ lived. That he died. That on the third day he rose from the dead. And then he ascends to the right hand of God on high. And sits down. The firstborn from the dead, Paul says. He is the Son of God and the Savior of humankind simultaneously. And so, as a priest, a priest is a, is a minister who brings benefits, right? A priest mediates on behalf of the people and then brings priestly benefits to the people that he ministers for. In the holy places, it says, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. What is that? Think about it. I know our brains are functioning as well usually on a Sunday morning. What is this true tent that is being spoken about? Some of my, my, my favorite commentators, including John Owen, say that this true tent is referring to Christ's body. That his body is the true tent. Um, and, you know, there's, there's, there's verses in Scripture that might help support that. It says, you are the, the temple of the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 2, we're told that Christ's body is the true temple. But I think that understanding is, is contradicted in chapter 9 of Hebrews, in verse uh, verse 12, it says that he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And so he's saying that his body and his blood was used to enter this holy place, to secure the redemption of people. I think it is far simpler to say that the true tent and the the holy places that have been spoken of here, and it matches the content very well, is speaking about the presence of God. It's speaking about the heavenly presence of God. One commentator says he has already shown that Christ is the high high priest, he now contends that his priesthood is celestial, meaning his priesthood is, is heavenly. And so what that means is that Christ is a better high priest operating from a better place, the very presence of God, not on earth. That's where he's ministering from. That's where he's giving benefits to his people from. That's where he is representing us. From the very presence of God at the right hand of, of majesty. The true tent is the very presence of God. God. And we'll we'll see why that matters. And chapter 9 is going to unfold that uh, for us. He then says in verse 3 that every priest must have something to offer. And that's telling us that the function of a priest is mediation. To bring something. To offer something on behalf of the people towards God. Mediators need sacrifices. And Jesus, therefore, could not be a priest if he was on earth, because he has nothing left to offer. Jesus offered himself. He does that once. Chapter 9 makes that very clear. It is done once. And so he's saying, if Jesus was on earth, he would have nothing to offer because he's already offered himself. He couldn't bring in a bull. He couldn't bring in a goat. He has nothing left to offer. That's why his priesthood cannot function on the earth. And this is all telling us that Jesus cannot exist with the Levitical priests. You cannot, you got to have one or the other. Either Jesus is not priest at all, or the Levitical priesthood is Done. The temple is done. These animal sacrifices, done. Those are your options. Verse 13 tells us, ready to be abolished. Done. And this all follows on from chapter 7 and verse 12 where it says, When there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law also. Something better is here. There's a better priest. There's a better covenant. There's a new law. I love what verse five says. I mean, this is this is a this is a Bible nerd kind of verse. But um, in 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 Hebrews chapter eight verse five, it's saying that the Levitical priesthood and the tabernacle, which is the 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 tent. Was simply a copy and a shadow of the heavenly reality. And he quotes Exodus 25 verse 40 when Moses was called to set up the old covenant tabernacle and worship in according to the exact plans that God gave him. And this is telling us that God set those things up for a season. He set up the Levitical priesthood. He set up the tabernacle, and he infused them with meaning that is pointing forward to a far greater reality. The substance is always greater than the shadow. The thing signified is always greater than the sign. I use this illustration a lot. I hold up my ring, and it's a, it's a wedding ring, and I say to people, "Is this my marriage?" I hope not. Is this my marriage? No. It's not my marriage. But it is a sign that signifies my marriage. And therefore I wear it on my right hand when I remember. Um, So, it's pointing to something greater. And so it is here. And this is all saying one thing, that Christ at the right hand of the Father is greater than a Levite priest in the temple offering a goat, I mean offering a sheep on behalf of the people, right? Perhaps we could say that God in His wisdom instituted this priesthood, this tent, these sacrifices, to let the people of Israel know, to let the people of Israel always see before them the fact that People require a mediator to come before God. That without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. They needed to see that. They needed to know that. Verse 6, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old. As the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. Better high priest, better ministry, with a better covenant, with better blessings based on better promises. I'm, com- I'm repeating myself ad infinitum because that's what the writer of Hebrews is doing. Better, 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 better. You want this. So what then was the, the problem with the old covenant? Verses 7 to 9 uh, tells us. God founded the nation of Israel through the Abrahamic covenant, promising to Abraham that he would multiply his descendants uh, as the stars in the sky gave him a covenant of uh, circumcision. And then came the Old Covenant after Israel came out of slavery in Egypt. And it says the Old Covenant refers to the Mosaic Covenant made at Mount Sinai. And this Old Covenant was primarily about giving laws to the people to govern their time in the land of Canaan. If you obey my laws, if you if you keep the the, uh, the priesthood and the worship going, you will remain long in the land. If you disobey my laws you will be exiled. And unfortunately that is what happened Verses seven to twelve of Hebrews eight are the longest quotation out of the Old Testament found in the New. And they come from Jeremiah chapter 31. Israel, had 12 tribes, had broken in two long before. Two tribes in the south of Judah, 10 in the north, called Israel, And Judah had been exiled from the land by the Babylonians in Jeremiah chapter 24 because of the breaking of that old covenant through disobedience. Verse 9 in Hebrews tells us, they did not continue in my covenant. Very simply, they broke it. The people broke God's covenant. And it says here that the old covenant was not faultless. And it's interesting because it says, who finds fault with the old covenant? In verse 8 it says, he finds fault. Who's finding fault? God is finding fault. with the covenant that he made. That's not to say God is foolish. But this shows the need for something greater. And then, in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 10 and 11. How many of you have got a bumper sticker or a coffee mug with Jeremiah twenty nine eleven on it? Anyone? You've done it before? It's okay. All right. For thus is the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you to close the Lord, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. That's the context of that verse. And I will add that what followed immediately after the plans of future and hope was a lot of hardship for, for many decades, right? So just be careful of how you apply that um, text. But it says, 70 years you're going to be in exile in Babylon and then... I'm going to restore you to your land, and then comes Jeremiah 30 to 33, and in verse chapter sorry, chapter 31 of Jeremiah, there's a promise of a new covenant. There will be a final restoration of Israel into their land, and the promises then of a new covenant, a final covenant, really, one with better promises. And those four promises are found in verses 10 to 12. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their heart. That's the first one. Under the Old Covenant, the Ten Commandments, the law was written with the finger of God on tablets of stone. This is saying I will internalize the law. This refers Ezekiel's prophecy in Ezekiel 36. It says, I will put my spirit within you, cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. A change from the law externally to the law internally. Secondly, I will be their God and they shall be my people. Now this verse is found in, in, in many covenants, actually, and this verse is found in Exodus chapter 6-7, so it's showing there is a level of continuity between the old covenant and the new. The difference here, I would say, is the manner under which people in the new covenant have become God's people. They have become God's people through a union with Christ who, who lived, died, rose again and ascended to heaven where he is the great high priest. They have a, a greater reality that they have taken hold of. And that this is then something that we need to hear. The creator of all things is our God. Do we hear these things that we sung? The Lord reigns. Behold our God you know what the opposite of that is? God is our enemy. And therefore this is incredibly good, good news. I will be your God. You will be my people. It's immensely good news. That's the second promise of the, the new covenant. That the people are sh- sheltered under the protection of the great king. Thirdly. They shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. The most contentious promise in the new covenant. I've spent about ten hours reading on that one verse over the last few weeks. A spectrum of views from here to here and everywhere and between, and all my heroes in different places. We can say simply that membership to the old covenant was based on physical descent. You're a Jew, you're an Israelite because of who your parents were. Boom, you're in. The new covenant is better in that all in the new covenant have a this relationship with God where there is their own knowledge of God. That everyone in this covenant has knowledge of God. Now, the debate that's coming in, is that now? Is that entirely future? Next week. And the fourth promise A balm to our soul. Peace for our hearts. Hear these words. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Your God is promising you that. That's so good. The removal of the judicial punishment for sins, the covering of our shame, a blood sacrifice that removes... Our iniquities forever, once for all. The exhausting of God's wrath for our rebellion. These are better promises. And Jesus is the mediator of this new covenant. He is the the head of this covenant. He guarantees it based on what he has done. Remember I said there's a sanction and a curse for breaking the covenant? You can argue that it's possible to break the new covenant by not having faith. I don't think that's actually breaking the covenant per se. The one who takes the sanctions and the curses upon himself in the new covenant is the one who mediates it, Christ himself. That he died. He bore the curse that we might receive the blessings. It's an immensely, immensely wonderful gospel promise. He guarantees these promises through his death, resurrection, and priesthood at the right hand of the Father. Its blessings come by virtue of our union with Christ as we rest and receive these promises by faith, including the faith itself which comes by the hearing of the word. It is not earned by us, it is earned by Christ, and it is freely given by the great king-priest. He gives the blessings of the new covenant. And that is the basis for our relationship with God. And that is why it's so important to have some understanding of it. Because that is what the Christian life is based upon. This new covenant. Before we get to a quick application, I want to just make a note then of verse 13. Some people have been asking, so, so what happens if you know, you still have the Levitical priesthood operating. Uh, why? Why? Why does Jesus mean we we don't slaughter animals anymore? Why is there no place for a temple anymore? In speaking in verse thirteen, and speaking of the new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. He's speaking in the present. Tense. The writer is acknowledging that the Old Covenant ceremonies were still going on at the time this was being written. The people who this letter to the Hebrews was written to were considering going back to those things. It was still functioning. That continued until AD 70 when the temple was destroyed. So we've got this kind of in-between period. The writer of Hebrews is saying there's a priest seated at the right hand of God. There's a change in the priesthood. That means that old covenant ceremonies are obsolete. They do not do anymore what they hope to do. That temple was destroyed in AD 70, an event which Jesus prophesied in Mark 13, verses 1 to 2. That the temple would be broken. Every brick would be undone. They're obsolete. The sacrifices are no good. We have something better. Trust in Christ. That's the message here. There is abundant application. Out of this text. I will say a couple of things. Hebrews 8 gives us the framework for the Christian life. That we come and the church comes before God on the basis of a covenant relationship. That is the basis of our relationship. Not a contract. Not here's my part, here's your part. No, it's a covenant. He te- He sets the terms. We don't set the terms. This covenant is a message of salvation that is accomplished, that is then lived out. And that causes us to live it out in, in various unique ways, which we'll talk about over the next a few weeks. But one thing that we need to understand is that the new covenant is God saying to us that we're not on a treadmill, right, I hate running, But the idea of running on a treadmill is even worse. You're not going anywhere. Okay? There's no scenery. That the Christian life is not a treadmill. Or you're trying and you're on this cycle of just guilt and shame and doing well for a bit and then it's not. He's saying, Here are the blessings that won through my son, here you go. I will remember your sins and your iniquities no more. I am your God. He supplies us with the Holy Spirit and writes His law upon our hearts and our minds so that we will grow, we will be convicted, and we will continue on in grace. The new covenant is not like a forlorn lover holding a flower. He loves me not loves me. Does he love me? No, he loves me not. You're not sure. You know that? He's saying, as surely as Jesus Christ died and rose again and ascended to the right hand of the Father, he loves you. Your sins are forgiven. Covenant might be an old word. It might not be a word that we use much anymore it is showing a reality that we need to understand. It is the reality that the only hopeful one for us. Andrew Murray says, Jesus is to be our assurance that everything connected with the covenant is unchangeably and eternally sure. That is huge. And I was just thinking with regards to to what happened in Christ Church on Friday, and, and just the, the horrors of that, the new covenant is just exactly what we need in a time of crisis. It's what we need on the best of days, but it is what we need in times of crisis. This world, just like the Old Covenant, is passing away. It's passing away. And what the New Covenant tells us is that Christ promises us the salvation, and when he returns, there's the consummation of this kingdom that has been constructed through this new covenant. You understand that? The new covenant is for the constructing of the people of God and the church and the kingdom of God for the reign and rule of Jesus Christ. That's how he makes it. And so when he returns... There will be a people that has been created, that worships and serves them forever, that have had their sins forgiven, and he is their God, and they live lives of righteousness and joy. All these things that we want, all these things that we haven't seen over the last few days. Only in a part. He says, when Christ returns, there's the confirmation of the fullness of his kingdom the great king-priest, and he gives what we need the most. That's what the new covenant tells us. That's the hope we need. And if you are a believer in Christ, that's your hope right now. That as sure as Christ lived and died again and ascended, he will return. And these promises will be sure for you. That's good news. Let's pray.